0: Welcome to episode sixty seven of the See Here Podcast. We talk about music related films. That's our niche, that's our genre, and on the other end of a Skype connection I have my partner in crime, Mr Bernard Stickwell. Uh good evening. Morning. Good morning, Morris. Uh, yes, it, it's uh what time is it here? It's uh oh quarter to ten. The day is escaping from us. We normally have a third partner in crime. That's Mr Tim Merrill out in Brantford, Ontario. But He's having some shenanigans at his place, having a barbecue with all our friends from the music and film community. Hope it turned out okay, Tim, and hope that you enjoy this episode if you choose to listen back to it later on. But what Bernie and I have just done is we've spoken to an interesting filmmaker, Kevin Poor. He has just made a film that's called Long Playing, and it's about people's love of records. And we'll go into more detail in a few minutes about what the format of that film is and how you'll be able to see it. But we had a lot of fun.
2: Absolutely, yeah, yeah. He's a very sweet guy and made a great film and it was a lovely conversation.
0: We're looking forward to you listening to that. After the break, what we'll do now is we'll play you the trailer for the film. You listen to the chat that we had. Hopefully, you'll be even more fascinated and will want to go out and search out the film. And then at the uh, end of the interview, Bernie and I will come back and we'll talk about what we'll be doing for next month's show, you're listening to See Here. The first record that I bought was The Cures, Japanese Whispers, Hound Dog, I'm Still Stomping,
3: Thriller, Double
0: Dutch Bus, Scott's Town, Birds of Fire, Beautiful Rama. Benny
4: Goodman, and High Five, Chiss Record, and Justice for All, I Want to Hold Your Hand,
1: The Twist. <laughs>
0: That
4: was the first one that I
0: purchased.
4: I never will stop going to record stores. That's ingrained in
0: me and one of the things I live to do. I think as long as you love
3: music and your taste is evolving, your record collection is never complete.
4: Well, I don't buy digital music. Ever. All you get is. play to hear it. Vinyl.
0: It's real. It's rocks. Why do you love records? That's like saying, why do you love breathing? Welcome back to episode 67 of the See Here podcast, Morris on this end, Bernie on that end, and then in the middle of us is director Kevin Poor out of, is it Los Angeles, Kevin? Long Beach, California. I mean, we're about 60 miles south of downtown Los Angeles. Ah, okay. Welcome to the show. You're somewhere in between us anyway. You're 19 hours, no, 17 hours behind me so I can see into your future.
4: You know, I was thinking about it knowing that you're in Australia and Bernie's in England, and I was thinking that you're drinking a cup of coffee and if he's if he's smart he's got a pint in front of him and I'm like in the middle I, I haven't started my day drinking
2: yet
3: <laughs>
2: just a swift half before we started I don't yeah. want to uh,
3: you
2: know, lose clarity
0: <laughs> well and we're off to a flying start we're here to yeah. talk with Kevin about his film that's being released this year called Long Playing and you might have guessed from the title that it is about records I'm not going to call it vinyls, that's for the new millennials who don't have the history, but we're going to talk about records and we're going to talk about his film, Long Playing. So welcome to the show, Kevin. Oh, uh, thank you very much. Before we actually get into talking about the film, I want to talk about your podcast and I think this is not just plug I mean, it is a wonderful podcast, but I think that there is a direct relationship between your podcast and the film. It's called Nights at the Sound Table. Hey everybody, Nights at the Sound Table, people who love music, talking about about the thing they love music. So for the listeners out there who have not had the good fortune yet to uh, listen to the program, which has been going for, what, nine or ten years or something like that? Nine years, yeah. Wow. So describe a little bit about the format and has it been the same format all along and sort of what got you into doing it? Uh, Nine years. The format is basically seven
4: segments. One segment is a recommendation segment. Another one is a segment where I don't let the panel know what i'm going to ask them and basically what it is it's a panel of three people and myself i send the panel questions in advance five questions i get to ask you the question what was the last great concert you went to what was the best use of a song in a commercial we've made it to segment four which is entitled (laughs) what and the question is, what was the most recent music that surprised you because you unexpectedly liked it? They answer it. They don't know what, what each other's answers are. And then I ask the questions streaming. Uh, actually, we stream it live. I ask them the questions on air, and then they answer. And it gives them all a chance to, like, rib each other or let each other know how what terrible musical tastes they have. You know, stuff like that. I have a friend, Mike Stark, who opened a radio studio, a radio production studio, And we'd been friends since college radio. I was sitting around with him and a couple of my friends one night. We were drinking beers and we were started talking about music. And he said, this would make a great podcast. And that's basically the history of it. We started recording the first few shows. I would say the first three were just us free-forming. And that was fun, but it didn't really make much of a show. So I came up with this format basically around the fourth show, which was to have a few people sitting around a table
0: answering questions and then poking fun at each other. And we've been doing it for nine years. I was going to ask, did this show originate in a pub? And you've pretty much gone and confirmed (laughs) that it was. Absolutely.
4: The great thing about the show itself, I'll be perfectly honest with you, is that the studio has moved since its original place, but the original place had a bar next door to it. So we could pre-game, carry a six pack over to the studio and then carry on for there. So every once in a while, the shows would get a little loose, (laughs) By the (laughs) by, the final episode. But we we've always had fun, and there's never there's really never been a moment where it just got to be boring or strange. Maybe strange, not boring.
0: Like a lot of fun. I've been catching up on a few of the episodes recently. And I just love the idea behind this. What's your favorite song for a rainy night? Or I'm sure somewhere in those nine or 10 years you've asked, what's your favorite baby-making music? Yes. (laughs) Well, you know, actually now,
4: nine years later, that has become the hardest part of the show for me. Everything else, it's rote, it's clockwork. But coming up with five questions for each show has become difficult because I run the questions by my wife before I ask them, and she invariably will tell me that I've asked that question before and she does (laughs) not and she hates that (laughs) you haven't kept a database of every question that you've ever asked yes I do I actually have it yeah but when I'm under the gun and I'm I'm trying to come up with a question I just type them in and then I say okay what about this and she'll say you need the check you know and then I go search and there it is I've had
0: children
1: conceived
0: listening to records. So, Kevin, we know about your background in podcasting and your love of music. I wanted to ask you, what's your history with film? Was this just something like... I need to make a film about my love of music and other people's love of records. I got my degree in journalism, and I'm basically
4: a writer. I've written stuff since I was a kid. I continued to write through adulthood, through working at you know a couple of corporations, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And at some point, I was working for DirecTV, which is a large satellite television company. I decided I wasn't going to do that anymore. And I was going to make money as a writer, hell or high water. I started getting a few gigs. I, this leads somewhere, I swear. Okay. I started getting I started getting a few gigs, like touching up scripts for people. I actually wrote uh, music criticism for a couple of online music and stereo sites. I, I just did anything I could to make money. I got hooked up with a guy who was a filmmaker, and in getting hooked up with him, we hit it off, and I wrote a few things for him. I actually fixed a couple movie scripts for him. I actually fixed a movie that he'd completed, so they went back and did some other recording for it. And in doing that, I kind of learned... About filmmaking. Now, at the same time, my wife is actually in the film industry. She's an assistant director, and so she knows film. She's she's the real deal. So I became involved in the periphery of movies. I decided to see. uh, It was really something that I wanted to try to do, which is to make a feature-length film for $8,000. And I actually did it. I raised the money. I got actors from the local university to act in it. I made this movie. It was completed. I decided to send it out to a few film festivals. And within probably, I think it was 48 hours, maybe 72. I don't want to cheat myself. Within 72 hours of me sending it out, it was already on the internet for people to download. So (laughs) I said, well, that's kind of lame. But at the same time, I learned that I could actually make a movie and I did it. You know, I filmed it with, uh, well, with people. I had a sound crew, I had a camera crew and then I edited it and it, it's not great. And I imagine people would hate it, but I was kind of proud of myself. After I finished that, I was at the local record store for Record Store Day, and a friend of mine went with me and said, what are all these people doing here? And I said, well, it's Record Store Day. Everyone's here to buy records. And he said, this is like a documentary in itself and from him saying that led to me spent doing going on this odyssey of making a movie trying to explain not only how much i love records and music itself but trying to bring other people into this fold trying to get people to express you know how they f- they felt about their records basically and at the same time, uh, kind of telling my story with records because there's little pieces of me in the movie naturally i tried to keep that minimum but mostly in the introductions to the individual tracks I'm exposing a little bit of of myself I've shot some music videos and I've I've filmed some political commercials and you know just very strange stuff that I ended up doing based on the fact that I wanted to make documentary about records I think me and vinyl have an open relationship now
0: we used to be going steady and our relationship has changed. We are still very good friends. This isn't the first time that we've discussed on this show films about records and love of records. We've sort of gone on both sides of the coin where there was a film that we discussed. Or it was a documentary by a guy called Alan Zweig called Vinyl. And that through scorn. There were no record collectors. They were all record hoarders. I don't know if you've seen that one. And on the same show, we also discussed a film called Desperate Man Blues about a fellow called Joe Bussard, or, or was it Bassard, who it, it celebrated his love and knowledge of 78s and old blues and country music, pre-war blues, pre-war country. So it was that show, we discussed both films. So it was both records as a figure of disdain or record collectors. collectors. Collectors is a figure of disdain and on the other side the guy was not a record collector he was an archivist and he knew like out of thousands of 78s in his collection he could tell you a story about every single one about every single song he knew the history of everything in his collection And watching your film, it's definitely on the celebratory side of records, because you've got all sorts of people, you've got record collectors, you've got musicians telling their story. So just to move a tad away from the film, I think it's probably fair enough to ask you, what was the first record you bought?
4: I can tell you the first record that I owned is actually on my wall. I'm looking at it right now. It is The Ballad of Davy Crockett by Fess Parker.
3: Born on a mountaintop in Tennessee, green estate in the land of the free, raised in the woods, so he knew every tree, Killed him a bar when he was only three.
4: And it's a, it's a '78, and my mom gave it to me. And I kind of think that that's what set me off on this lifelong love of records that it was an old turntable that we had, you know, one of the suitcase turntables, you know, that you could smell the tubes and, you know, everything. And she set me down and she said, oh, I've got this for you, and she played this record. And I, from that time on, it was nuts. You know, I've loved, I've really loved records and, and collected them even through the dark ages of the 90s. I still would <laughs> buy records when I... I can tell you the first record that I bought with my own money... I believe it was and because it's kind of fuzzy now cuz uh, you know it's I'm talking the 60s I think it was more of the monkeys with my allowance okay
3: look how it comes tomorrow that's when i have to choose how i wish
1: i
4: It was either that or it was a 45 of the Bee Gees doing words, the song
0: Words. Yep.
2: Okay, yeah. I think uh, you need to tell us yours, Morris, and then uh, I'll tell you mine.
0: Oh, right on. Well, just a little bit of a background here. There's a wonderful television show, which unfortunately is not being renewed for this year, called Rock Quiz. And it's basically like a pub trivia quiz that's televised. And I was on an episode in season one. And basically the host of the show and everyone who listens to this podcast, who's in Australia, will be well familiar with this program. The host is a woman called Julia Zemiro, really, really charismatic and very, very funny. And she basically, before they started recording, she went to both teams. She said to one team, okay, I'm going to be asking you, what was the first record you bought? And our team, she said, I'll be asking you, what was the first concert ever you went to? And I said, oh, oh, thank goodness for that. She said, oh, why is that? She said, oh, I'm not terribly keen on the first record I ever bought. (laughs) She said, "Oh, oh, okay. And then, so whilst we're recording on national television, she says... Morris,
1: I'm going to ask you about your first concert in a minute, but what was your first album?
0: Do I have to confess? Yes. Hundred years of Strauss waltzes. Yes.
3: Seriously, Morris, what was the first concert you ever went
0: to? I think it was a hundred years of Strauss waltzes. <laughs> 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 Not at all cool. But I liked it at the time. So uh, I'll say the second record that I bought was a four track EP. So this is back in 1975. A lot of records were deleted after a period of time, no longer at saleability. Beatles records never stopped being on sale. So I got four track ep of penny lane eleanor rigby strawberry fields forever and yellow submarine and i still have and treasure that ep to this day that's the cool answer but 100 years of strauss waltzes (laughs) if i'm going to be honest
3: they're
2: both pretty cool answers you can get away with that morris
0: oh thank you so bernie your first record
2: yes please. okay well the first record i owned i I think I was given it for my birthday. I don't remember how I came into possession of it. I know it's not the first record I bought because I was a little too young, but it was a 45, a 7 inch of The Funky Gibbon by The Goodies.
0: Oh, that is a uh, cool answer. Q, 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 the funky gibbon.
3: <laughs> I don't know if you've ever
2: heard of the goodies, Kevin, but uh, Morris will certainly understand that. Yeah. They they were a, a, a TV comedy... Uh, I guess there was three of them, weren't there? And they mm. kind of had these... It wasn't quite like a comedy sketch show, but they would kind of just have these weird adventures every week. And yeah, they released a single called "The Funky Gibbon," and uh, that, that was the first record I owned. The B side was "Sick Man Blues," I remember <laughs> as well. I remember that. Oh yeah, I remember.
0: That very well.
2: <laughs> the first record I ever actually bought with my own money. Again, it was a seven-inch and I'm pretty sure it was Don't Stand So Close To Me by the police.
0: Right. On. Oh, very cool. So uh,
2: that would have been, what, about 77, 78 maybe?
0: Maybe 1980 by that spot because I'm pretty sure... Really? I was in, I think it was maybe 1979 it was, yeah. when I first remember hearing message in a bottle. And oh, it yeah, must Don't okay. Stand So Close To Me came after that, so... Um,
2: that, that makes sense. I would have been about nine years old, so that makes sense, yeah.
0: yeah. If you'd
4: like, I can tell you a quick story that will explain exactly how my record addiction has played throughout my life
0: yes please sure yeah
4: i was young enough where my mom would still walk me to school sometimes you know i was almost really good with crossing the street at lights (laughs) i decided that i wanted the beatles white album because i found out about it and it was very exciting to me well, I was also young enough that my mom kind of frowned on the white album a little bit based on what she had heard about it or what she'd heard from it. But I decided that I really, really needed it. So on one Saturday, my mom was doing the laundry and hanging it you know out back and running around doing things. I broke open my piggy bank, and I had i literally had a piggy bank. I broke it open and took all of the money out of it and I walked to the closest place where I knew they carried records and purchased the White Album. And actually, I was a little short on cash, but the lady at the counter actually paid for the rest of it, which I think turned out to be maybe 37 cents or something. And then I walked home and broke open my little white plastic turntable and was listening to the uh, White Album when my mom came in and discovered that I had done this. and. I hate to say that she did take it away from me for a couple of days, but then she gave it back to me, and um, I still have a copy of it. So,
0: Kevin, I just want to ask, have you been reading my diary? Because apart from the fact that my mother didn't take the record away from me, that is exactly my story. I broke open my piggy bank because I wanted the White Album more than anything. Are
4: you kidding? Are you kidding?
0: I'm right down to the fact that I went to the store and the album, I remember, was $11.99. That shows how long ago that was. And I had $11.84 and I'd gone and poured in all the 5-cent pieces and 10-cent pieces on the counter. And I was 15 cents short. And just because they wanted me to understand the value of money, they let me take the record home. But they said, okay, Morris, you have to come back next week and pay us the other 15 cents. But I took it home and I think a week later, my mum opened up the tin where I kept all the money in. So to encourage me to put it into the bank and save it. And she woke me up and said, what happened to all your savings? I bought the white album. You what? So <laughs> that, <laughs> is, that I, I have to say that is remarkable. And it's the same <laughs> album. Look, the fact that you know we had parents who said, what are you doing wasting your money on records is I'm sure a common story, but the fact that it was the white album, Kevin, that is Twilight Zone material. Yes. That's, that's, that's pretty that freaky, is pretty. isn't it? Bernie, do you have a similar story?
2: Unfortunately, I don't know. I don't even own a copy of the white album. Well, Sorry. not the wide album, but you <laughs> have an album
0: that your mother... What are you doing wasting your money on that and you break up <sighs> the piggy bank to get?
2: No, yeah. see, I, I used to do that with comic books. I didn't really do that. Strangely enough, I, when I first started really buying albums... It wasn't albums it was cassette tapes and my mum had bought me this little cassette player you know one of those old school ones with the push down buttons on there mm. so she bought me that and i think it was an album or a cassette by
3: adam in the Ants. <laughs>
2: Madness, so I would then buy, save up my money, and buy cassettes, not records. Records came a few years later, so probably in my teens, really, is when I had my first record player. So, so I was, I was definitely a music fan, but I didn't own many records probably till I was about thirteen, something like that. So slightly different story. I got there a slightly different route, but the addiction did take hold as soon as I started buying them
0: well this leads back to the discussion of the film itself Kevin because you are here to talk about your film (laughs) oh yeah 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 which which for the listening audience (laughs) who may have forgotten about that it's called long playing yes you have a lot of people talking about their origins of record collection and let's just sort of talk for a little bit about the structure of the film Uh, we were doing this before we started recording but the film is a talking heads type of film and no David Byrne jokes (laughs) <laughs> but what i really enjoyed about the film's structure is how you broke it up into various questions i mean i guess not too dissimilar to nights at the sound table you you would ask of your cast of thousands a question and you'd edit all their responses in to uh, the various sections and then in between each section with the main questions you'd have, these diversions, which you've gone and said, was like your representation of the silence in between songs. Yes, and I think uh, doing it in that style is what really kept it interesting for me. I thought, right, okay, we got a few minutes, we're going to talk about this. Boom, everything was distinctive in the moments in between the tracks. How to look after your records. I love that all the young dude as a superhero. <laughs> Who
3: is
1: that? All the young mighty dude, I guess.
0: You must put that down.
1: What? What? It is too important to ignore. What does he want? I have zero ideas. That must go. <laughs>
0: Saving citizens from buying it wasn't Nickelback was it but it was Bicklenack. <laughs> yes, B- it was Bicklenack. Bicklenack. You, did, you didn't want to get into trouble. I, I really loved how the format broke things up And yet yeah, there was a section on cover art. So I, I was making a presumption there Did you actually ask your cast of thousands the same question and then edit accordingly? What I did was I have I
4: had a set a number of questions 23 questions that I asked to every single person um, I would send the questions to them, uh, usually a week or two weeks in advance of meeting with them. And then I would follow up a couple of days uh, beforehand to let them know and just to make sure that they had read the questions, actually. But seeing the questions is what I had that that they'd arrived. And so I would ask all the questions and more than likely, I would ask them all in the same order because that would make it easier for me to catalog and edit at the end. But the rule was, and this this will sound familiar to you. The rule was is if there was something that they really wanted to talk about, or there was something that they thought I told them to, I, well, I would ask each person just to say it, just to talk about it, because it's going to be much more interesting than me asking questions. And so that's how we went about it. So I would more than likely get answers. To the questions I would ask, but I would also get interesting things that they would say that wouldn't really tie into the question I asked, but many times it would actually be A really good answer for one of the other questions that I was going to ask, you know, that was coming up. So Mm -hmm. I, I know that's kind of a long way around. But yes, I would they would know what questions I was asking. And my intention was to edit their answers into the talking head thing that we're talking about. A lot of times it things turned out better than that for me. I was
2: shocked. I assume that's how you got the guy to talk about the real to real tapes. That was a really interesting little segment, I thought.
4: If you ever listen to the reel-to-reel tapes of Rubber Soul, let's just say seven and a half ips, they came out in three and seven and a half, seven and a half ips, the blue box. If you take your Rubber Soul reel-to-reel and you AB that against any configuration you want, your vinyl, maybe maybe some Mobile Fidelity Sound Lab vinyl, cassette, eight-track. Obviously CDs, right? ABM against anything. Nothing beats the sound of a reel-to-reel tape. Why? Let's think about it for a minute. Music's recorded onto tape. Oh, yeah, that was just something that he said. Chris Carter's his name. Yeah, yeah. Uh, by the way, original member of the group Dramarama, Chris Carter. And now he's a DJ and he does breakfast with the Beatles every week on uh, local oh, right. stations and stuff. Yeah, yes. Yeah, so he had his tape deck there and he just told me, I, you know what? I think people would be interested in this, the real, to real tapes. And so it didn't fit with the other questions, etc. But I used it as the turning over of the record, you know, when you flip uh, your record over. Yep. You know, so yeah. and That's why you know, while we flip the record over, listen to tapes.
2: I think that so. bit worked really well. That was the perfect point to uh, to put it in the film. That works very oh, nicely, you. I thought.
0: If we're always talking about sound reproduction and we may do this further on in the discussion, but just why is it that reel-to-reel tapes have not come back? And I, I don't mean that as a piss-take <laughs> question, I, I really mean because I think one of the great sound reproduction experiences that I've had, I remember as a kid going across the road to my neighbour's place and they had one of these fancy Danish hi-fi stereo systems and they had a reel-to-reel and I think I heard Strawberry Fields as played on they real to real and some really schmick high end real to real tape deck and i think it's possibly to this date i think one of the greatest sound reproduction experiences that i've had but for all the fact that everyone talks about oh well records sound better and we'll have that discussion as well do you think it's well, purely about it never had its day yes i think that is exactly it it
4: It was a real niche, and there were people who collected, you know, had really high-end machines, like you said, and they would buy the tapes and listen to them and play them. I had a friend that was one of those guys, and they just sounded amazing, but it's just the manufacture of the tapes, you know, it would take longer to make the tapes themselves. It's even more drawn-out process than pressing an album. I think that was really it. I think that if it would have been a simpler process and maybe if the machines would have been, you know, a little bit less expensive, it it might have taken off. And just to add to that, Bernie Grunman, world-famous mastering engineer, he owns a company that does it. He's done so many albums, Hendrix albums, Joni Mitchell. You know, you can just name anybody, and he's done these albums. And I interviewed him in his vinyl-cutting room, and while I was there, he said, oh, do you want to hear something really cool? And I said, sure. And he went directly from a master... There's a point to this, by the way. (laughs) He went directly from a master tape into his lathe, and he just cut one side of something. And he said, okay, I would just stand here, and I'm going to play the lathe cut version of of the record. And I want you to stand here and listen to it. And he put it on, and at the time, it was a new Foo Fighters record. And I cannot begin to explain to you how Amazing and beautiful. It sounded standing there. And that was one generation away from the master tape. And when they made the reel-to-reel tapes, they were one generations off of master tapes. And I think that that is the real reason behind those tapes those original versions of the tapes sounding so good is that they were so close to the original source and the sound was you know replicated so well that you know, it didn't matter what it was it's strauss waltzes people are gonna
2: <laughs> <laughs> now
4: you're
0: torturing me
2: <laughs> i guess but, you can use the analogy of uh kind of photocopy of a photocopy can not you it's when it moves to the next stage as it were it's going to lose a certain amount of detail and clarity and- and so on, even if it's a, a minuscule amount, it's, it's not going to sound as good as that original recording, is it? Not ever.
4: Yeah, exactly.
0: That was my ramble about tape. We yeah. need more rambles. We love rambles. <laughs> as we, you've worked out, we're fans of the ramble. <laughs> Particularly Jack Elliott. I got the blues from my baby Let me buy to Oh, Shalani, she so far away One of the what we'll call the diversions in the film the representations of the silence on the record as you want to call them that i really loved was the section called a poet's history of recorded music oh and done by a young lady who calls herself shy but fly and a couple of fellows behind playing percussion behind her so i had a bit of a beatnik flavor about it tell us about shy but fly and how that segment came to be because that was fantastic
2: Every masterpiece starts with a dream. Every vision starts with an idea. Edison's vision became reality in 1877. Sound captured and released for your listening pleasure. Time passes and dreams expand. Always looking to further the cause. So along comes records, phonographs and ragtime. You gotta get yours because I've got mine. Effie Stewart records the first classical beast in 1889. Good
3: old 78. Out with the old, in with the new. 19 roaring 20s crazy blues.
4: She is, uh, just to throw it out there, she is also an amazing singer. And I wish I could remember who she's on tour with right now, but she, someone heard her sing and they picked her up and now she's touring with some, uh, some band, a really good band, by the way, I just off the top of my head, it's not clicking. But what happened is I saw her perform. It was an anti-violence benefit. And I thought, wow, she is really, really good. And I happen to have another friend that turned out knew her. And so I got her number and I called her and I said, I think this would be something that uh, you could do really well and I would be really interested. And what I would like to do is allow you to tell this history recorded music however you would like to. The only thing I would do is I would like to give you a number of points that I think are important in the recording, in the birth of actual records all the way through now but everything else in between is whatever you find to be interesting that was the only limitation i put on her didn't care how long she went or Tempo, anything at all. I just wanted her to hit those 10 or 15 points. And we filmed it twice. And that performance, I think there's only one real cut in that performance. And that's just an insert shot that I hope that you guys didn't see. I have to go back and watch <laughs> it again now. <laughs> but most of it is just three cameras and one performance. And it's just amazing. I really like that a lot myself. And that's not through anything that I did as a filmmaker,
0: it's just because her, her performance was so cool that, I was like, wow, that helps me a lot. You said that she's this amazing singer. What does she actually do? What style does she work in? I saw her front a blues band. She sang blues. I saw her
4: sing basically some R&B, and I seem to remember her doing like a classic rock song at some point, but that might have been a time when I maybe had a one beer too many or something. But, (laughs) (laughs) But she's a real talent, and I hope that things continue need to go her way.
3: Ride me, baby,
2: A, a number of kind of vinyl and record collecting type documentaries around at the moment. Or over a recent couple of years and i think that they seem to be a little bit more specialist and niche in there they tend to be about the specifics of collecting or what have you and what i felt with your film is that it takes a more general approach to the idea of records not just collecting but you're kind of putting across why records are important to people what people get from not just the, the sound the music but the format itself your film works very good as a primer for people who aren't necessarily collectors or even that aware of vinyl and the history of vinyl i was wondering did you have a a sense when you were putting the film together or did it just come together in in that way that's an awesome question by the way Um, thank you a bit rambling (laughs) but
4: (laughs) i knew up front that I wanted people to feel kind of like love for music, not just not records. My initial goal in editing together and writing the script, you know, the everything going around it was I really love music. And my goal was to try and convey A love of music. In this case, it just happened to be related to vinyl records and record stores and you know how people, you know how it's made and all of these things. But my goal was to convey that love. Music is an awesome thing. It's an awesome force. It's one of the greatest things on the planet. So I was trying to write a script where people are talking about their records and they're talking about their love of music, and they're talking about all these different things. I really wanted to convey that in an emotional way, very viscerally, and have the thing that they're seeing, the things that anyone watch it watches the movie, they see it as, here's records, here's the artwork, here's this, that, the other piece. But Overall, what I was trying to do is say music is powerful. Music dra- can drive good in society and love and all those hippie ideals, whatever you want. You know what I mean? <laughs> so when I started writing the script, I had an idea that I wanted people to whatever it was. I wanted them to kind of feel that love that people have. And it, in this instance, it just happens to be conveyed by people who write record play sell collect anything that having to do with music so i hope that wasn't too rambling but that was my ultimate goal in in assembling the movie you know and that's the reason that i added in things like kids drawing their versions of album covers
2: sure yeah yeah
4: my idea behind that was Kids see things like so beautifully and, you know, it didn't matter what level of artists they were or whatever. If they could take this piece of art and you can compare it against the original thing, you can't help but go like, you know, what, kids, they're awesome. The way that they look at things, the way that it impacts people, their view, blah, blah, blah. So that was my long winded answer to I was just trying to convey a sense of people loving something and there being something that's very important that people should love
2: i I (laughs) think the uh the key word from what you were saying is is emotion and i think the film does a, a very good job of conveying that and how it can affect people
3: records
2: gave me
4: a purpose for a long time in my life it gave me a social life it gave me a hobby It educated me.
0: We are talking passion here, and there's one moment in the film where you say, okay, the question is not Beatles versus Stones. Who's a new Dylan? Did rap kill rock? The crucial question, and this is where people get passionate about, is why do records sound so much better? (sighs) I'm going to play devil's advocate here. Hope you don't mind. Yeah. So the question is, why does vinyl sound so much better than what? Than cassettes? (laughs) Better than (laughs) CDs better than mp3s okay so for the record i mean i know that bernie is definitely more of a record guy for me i'm from sound quality i'm a cd person but from the romance the album covers the memories it gives me it's records for me in that sense but for the sound quality it's always as long as they've been around cds and i know that probably half our audience is probably switched off or abusing me or saying i'm a knucklehead (laughs) (laughs) so the the hypothesis i want to ask i know that there are definitely people who might have these great sound systems and say that you know records sound a whole lot better but i'm also wondering if there's a case of the emperor's new clothes going on in 2019 because you know i know that there are people out there who probably have a record player that they bought at the post office and they're in love with the idea of records rather than necessarily saying that the record's are better. I agree with you, Morris, uh, 100%. And that's a really fair
4: question to ask, and maybe it, it's open-ended for a reason. And and I'll give you a little background on where I fall on the scale. I love records, and I love the way records sound, just listening to them. And I have stupid theories about why I prefer that sound to, let's say, a CD or or something else. But I listen to music in every format. You know, I. Stir Dream music. You know, it just depends on what I'm doing at any particular time. And I agree. I think some of it is the Emperor's New Clothes, and that people are on the bandwagon now or they've joined, and suddenly it's like, oh, well, the records sound fantastic, way better than, uh, let's say, a a CD when there's no way it possibly could, based upon what you said about having a Crosley turntable or, you know, whatever. (laughs) But where I fall into the scale is that I know how I hear things and I know. This sounds weird, but I know kind of where my failings are as far as listening to music and sounds, et cetera, et cetera. And I have somewhat pedestrian ears. I don't have great ears like some of my friends. If I put on a record, I have a mid-level turntable and I have uh, boxy speakers and I put it on and it's perfect for me and it sounds great, et cetera. But I know for a fact that there are way better systems in mine, and people appreciate them and they can understand, you know, what's going on on, but my ears just aren't that good. My ears are attuned to what I'm doing. So I can tell the difference between a record and a CD because with CDs you get clarity, you get higher end, you get lower lows. They can force everything onto CD. They can put it there and you can have beautiful, pristine sound and some there's some things that I would rather listen to on a CD. I would rather listen to Joe's Garage on a, a CD than playing my record. It's just the way it is because there's more detail and there's more stuff in there. But overall, I would just rather play a record because my range of hearings within a particular spectrum and there seems to be a little warmth to it, I think is just because, you know, all the music can only fit in from top to bottom in a certain range. And that range just feels really comfortable for me. And so I don't really need some of the sparkling highs and
0: the busting lows because I just don't really feel them or hear them, whatever. I don't know where Bernie sits on this, but I know that certainly my ears are very pedestrian. And also given, I think, for a time in the 80s, I, I had this hypothesis that in Australia anyway, records were being deliberately mastered poorer because they wanted people to drop off buying records and buy the new CDs. <laughs> as a product and then they say oh well record sales are declining we might as well stop manufacturing them so maybe my ears are sort of saying that I don't get what other people do out of records because at the time while I was still buying lots of records I wasn't hearing anything particularly great and CD just seemed like such an attractive alternative but you also have like a fellow at the end of your film I can't remember who it was who was saying that he thinks records that are being made nowadays and it, we're not talking about you know people who are buying secondhand well-maintained records at record fairs we're talking about the new records that you buy in the record stores new pressings that they're saying of the bee's knees he says that he thinks that records are being made worse than ever
4: Yes. And I had a long discussion with him.
0: He's actually a
4: producer and performer. Um, he's part of the group People Under the Stairs. And I think they just put out their final record. I think they stopped. And I was actually in his home studio. Really nice one, by the way. I wish I had it <laughs> when we had that discussion. And he had a number of reasons why he believed that. And I think the primary reason was that because of rules as far as the manufacture of the materials that go into making a record. Record that they couldn't press records as well. So, whatever, I think it was there's some kind of gasoline additive or some kind of thing that needed to go into the plastic itself that they could no longer add in due to the fact that it was poisoning the planet. So, he thinks that the records today, because they're missing that, are primarily are inferior to anything that was made prior to like the year 2000 somewhere around there when they actually stopped doing that
2: I think like uh, both you guys I, I have fairly pedestrian ears as well tend to buy and listen to mainly vinyl but I, I certainly i own hundreds of cds like you said kevin i'll happily stream things listen to mp3s it's interesting you don't hear a huge amount of difference unless you've got a, a super top-end expensive hi-fi system you know a poor stereo a cd will sound better on a poor stereo the vinyl will on a poor stereo don't really know what I'm getting out there but uh yeah 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 and i think as well a, a lot of kind of hi-fi nerds and people who are actually into the machinery that you listen to your music on as it were Kind of get lost in the process of listening in a way. It's almost like they're not listening to the music. They're trying to spot the differences in how the music sounds and try and detect certain frequencies or what have you. I don't know. I think sometimes people like that are kind of missing the point a little bit.
4: But to share a story, I'll I'll tell it really quick. Uh, One of the people I interviewed for the movie was a really, really nice man who had made an awful lot of money. I mean, a lot of (laughs) money, right? I went to his house. It was huge. It was like, oh my God, is is this a hotel kind of a thing? And I went into his room. He's a, he he performs, he's a musician as well. I went into his room and he had a turntable stereo system that he'd had built in Germany that was so elaborate and fantastic that I I was kind of stunned by it. Um, And he played a record for me that he actually opened it because it was a brand new pressing, opened it, cleaned it, put it on for me. And I stood in the room and it was basically his speakers, his amplifier was, I don't know, five Watts or something. And it went into these speakers that were large tubes that were so big that I couldn't even get one in my house and um, I stood on the other side of the room and he played it for me and it sounded really nice but I didn't want to admit to him that I could not really tell the difference between <laughs> that and me sitting on my couch.
2: Get out those old records, those old phonograph records, the ones we used to play so long ago. I think you, you kind of get used to listening to music on your own system, your own equipment, so that just kind of that settles into your ears, doesn't it? And then that's how you're used to hearing things. We're going to come at this from a slightly different angle.
0: I was discussing with Bernie before we dialed into you, Kevin. He seems to be a talking head in quite a few documentaries nowadays. But Keith Morris, who you get in your film, and I was yeah. really happy to see him there. And whilst you're sort of going through. All these people are saying, oh, records sound better and this. And he's basically saying what we're here saying now, fellas, it's about the music. I don't care what I listen to it. Yeah, sure, I love records, but, Mm -hmm. you know, I love music. That's what is the most important thing. I guess the message, not the medium. And exactly.
2: Well, it's interesting. You were talking earlier, Morris, about the uh, the film we covered a while ago, Vinyl, mm. sort of obsessive record collectors, and that that was a really good example of. I mean, it was basically it was a film about obsession. It wasn't a film about music it was a film about people who were obsessed with collecting and owning things i wonder how much or how much time those people spent actually listening to the records they were amassing whether it was more just about the obsession of amassing those kind of things that's kind of like keith morris was saying it's easy to get lost in the obsession of acquiring things, and it's when it comes down to it, it's about the music, it's about the song. So, however you're listening to it, and you know, whatever you're buying it, it's it's all about that song when it comes down to it.
4: Scott Holiday from Rival Sons said in my movie, "It's the format that's appropriate to where you're at, you know." Yeah,
2: absolutely, yeah.
4: You know, and I, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of that. As long as I can hear music, as long as it's playing, you know, I'm good. Yeah, I just happen to prefer records and I enjoy, you know, everything about the crusty smell and reading the liner notes. You know, when yeah. you get older the liner notes start getting smaller and smaller, so it, the
0: 12-inch format is uh, it really <laughs> helps I'll send you a link to this film, Vinyl, directed by Alan I think Actually, the whole thing's on YouTube, and it gives you another side. I mean, I wonder if you'd watched this film before making your film, whether you would have made it. Oh, yeah. Or, <laughs> or, or maybe you would have anyway, because you would have said, no, I need a counterpoint to this film. But there's one fellow in it, Bernie, I think you pointed this out while we're having the discussion, and particularly who amused you, that guy who said, uh, I want to collect every record in the world. And Alan says, uh, well, hang on, every rock record, every American American record. Nope, nope, every record. You just pull any record out of my collection <laughs> and tell me the name and I'll tell you every song that's on there. And I think the first record he pulls out, he fails miserably. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, like
2: yeah, I was hilarious, yeah, for all the wrong reasons. So. <laughs> Indeed,
0: <laughs>
4: Exactly. And, you know, I was really lucky in making the movie in that I had set a main rule setting out was that I would not cold call anybody. I would get a referral for every single person that I interviewed. And so it was a large connected group of people who every single person in my movie is somehow connected to someone else in the movie. Okay. Um, and overall, they turned out to be like, warm, gracious, helpful, funny, brilliant in many ways. People who are brilliant in different areas, but brilliant. I have to say that I was kind of spoiled by doing this and the fact that it was really a pleasure for me, not only to get to invade these people's lives and ask them these questions, but just uh, listen to people who really love music talk about music and their record collections and everything that goes into it. and. The knowledge that people would have not only about artists and about recording, et cetera, but all different aspects of the music industry. You know, there were musicians giving me lessons on, as we were talking about earlier, mastering or pressing. Why it was really good to be um, uh, to get records from the front of a run and instead of the back of a run. I was extremely happy and still grateful that I was able to do this. I, I know it it sounds weird, but as a person making a movie. So far, I've had a blast doing it, and it's been a really great experience for me.
2: I got a stack of records here, a stack of records
3: there. I got records scattered all over everywhere, but I'm looking for one that I can't
0: find. The one where the guitar plays so fine, because that's the only song that my baby likes to hear so how many people that appeared in the film were already people that you knew and how many of them were people who the first subject would say oh you really got to speak to this fellow or this lady rough percentage how many of the people in that film did you know going in Um, I probably knew five of them and I ended up
4: and I ended up interviewing a little over a hundred different people. It was really great. I mean, I have to say that I got interviews with some people, for example, Keith Morris. I got an interview with him because my wife was working on a television show that was starring Christina Applegate. and her husband is a musician and and her husband like turned us on to people and sometimes i would get referrals to the same person from two or three different people and i would figure Oh, well, I guess I should call them since everyone wants me to talk to them. The funny thing about Keith Morris, just to drop in a little thing, is that we grew up in the same area, and we're generally the same age. I remember his dad's shop down on, you know, Pier Avenue, and which was by my house, and, you know, just, it's really funny, and... For example, the guys in Black Flag used to rehearse in a church in Redondo Beach that was close to me. And so I would walk by there all the time. So some of it, it was just luck because I'm in the area and it's Los Angeles, you know, and there's a lot of musicians and a lot of music business was in Los Angeles. And so I lucked out in that. But overall, it was really cool. It was just a, a never ending stream of people saying, seeming to enjoy my interview enough and us talking about music that they would refer me to a few people. And then I would, you know, once I had a referral, I would contact every single person to see if they would be interested.
2: Were there people that turned you down or did you, you were pretty much successful with, uh, with everybody?
4: I was very successful with almost every single person that I was reviewed. There were a couple people that turned me down. And then the cool thing was that they, most of the time it wasn't because they were uninterested in talking about music. Or their record Mm -hmm. collections, because almost every single person I talked to owned a record collection, whether it was twenty-five or eighty thousand records. Most of the time, when people couldn't do it, it was because they were going on tour or their calendar was backed up for a couple months, and they said, "I'll schedule something with you, but I can't promise that I won't have to cancel on you." Know that kind of thing. One funny thing is that there's one person that flat out turned me down, and he was a guy that was referred to me. My friend referred to him as the bootleg king and it's because he collected bootlegs and i guess he had like the largest collection of bootleg pressings of anyone anywhere and just a massive amount every grateful dead show on vinyl that kind of stuff you know just ridiculous stuff he turned me down because he didn't want to appear on camera, which I understood. And I said, well, if you want, I will film away from you and you can talk off camera. We can put a picture up of something else. And he didn't want to do that because he didn't want anyone to hear his voice. And I said, well, I can alter your voice. And eventually he didn't want to do any of the things that I proposed to him, but he did want to appear in the movie as a consultant just for telling me stories about bootleg (laughs) tractors. That's not going to work for me.
0: (laughs) Just as a side thing, have you read the Clinton-Halen book about the history of bootlegs? No, I have not. I think it's called The Great White Wonder, which was, I think... The, the, first, first, the first one, Dylan, yeah, the, the, Dylan. Dylan. Like, yeah. The edition that I have is not the final edition. He's put out another one. But of course, in today's day and age where um, people just take their phones in and you know, will record a show under their seat or something like that and put it out on the web, it sort of seems like the golden age of bootleg collecting is an eternity away but this book is absolutely fascinating and i think it's a shame that you didn't get this fellow to be able to talk in the film and i think actually that probably needs a whole documentary unto itself clinton halen makes the case in his book that not only bootlegs are you know not the evil that they're made out to be by some artists and the authorities but he says in fact they're an essential history of rock and roll unto themselves. I think for him, he said that the the Rolling Stones bootleg, uh, Liver Than You'll Ever Be, for him was a much better album to listen to than Get Your Ya's Out, which was from the same Rolling Stones tour. Yeah, yeah. My introduction, Bernie and I and Tim were speaking about this previously, my introduction to The Replacements was through a bootleg. A friend went and gave me their album Shit Shower and Shave, which was Uh done on the Tom Petty tour that they supported. And I I listened to that and became an instant fan. It was recorded well and they were exciting. And Paul Westerberg was extremely funny. So, yeah, I'll side with Clinton Halen on this. And, yeah, I wholeheartedly recommend that book definitely something you should uh, search into and you know maybe i'm just planting the seed into your brain that <laughs> you need to be the one to make a documentary about it kevin
4: well you know what it totally fascinates me and maybe i could get this guy to uh <laughs> to to get involved along with clinton halen i would actually enjoy that
3: you
2: heard it here first folks this is uh, kevin's project that's right. don't say no we were serious Break. <laughs> <laughs> we wanted to be a consultant or
0: Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I, re- I recommended the book. I don't have to contribute anything else. Just put see here, your love of see here in the credits. Before we finish, just a couple of other things it's in relation to filmmaking itself. Our friend Eric Peterson, who's had a long association with both of our podcasts, he's always said that we're living in a golden age of music documentary and that's probably got a lot to do with distribution i mean in some ways it's probably harder to get a longer screening on the cinema screen like in the old days i guess you'd get a film out and it might be out for three or four weeks or or a couple of months or whatever but the subject matter would be limited you you know you'd get a film like the, the last waltz or what was the scorsese one about the stones uh shine a light shine a light yeah yeah With filmmaking equipment being so inexpensive comparatively and with crowdsourcing being a thing to allow you to do post, it seems that we are living in a golden age and if you have a niche subject that you want to tackle or an artist that no one has heard of or only a few people are a fan of, then we're getting more of those films than ever and more power to filmmakers like yourself who are able to do something like that. Do you think that you could have made a film like this maybe 20 years ago or do you think that there would have always been enough of an interest in records or be an audience to see it that's a good question and, and uh, to be perfectly honest i would say no
4: not in the fact that there weren't people who the the same kinds of people and the same people with the same love, I think that they were there and they've been there and it would continue. I think that it would have been prohibitive. Well, I'll couch this in another way. It would have been prohibitive to make a movie with a certain level of quality as far as you know sound and visual, et because I, I'm I was lucky that I'm in this age where I have a, a HD camera that's really good and I have digital recorders and... And I can, you know, set up a backup and, you know, record, et cetera, et cetera. So I could make something of a certain quality level, still indie film, and it's still handmade because I I handmade it and I want it to look kind of handmade. But 30 years ago, 25 years ago, no, it would. I could have gotten the people and I could have done everything, but I could not have assembled this movie in the way that I assembled it and to have it have the aspect of it that I wanted to make.
0: So when are people going to be able to see this? Are you planning on putting it on a streaming platform? Is it just going to be purchased from your website? How will yeah. people who are listening to this who are thinking, damn it, I want to hear what other people have to say about yeah. records and, and their love of music?
4: Well, the plan is is that you know we have a little bit of paperwork to clean up and once that's done, then yeah, we're going to try to push it ourselves but we're also going to go back to the big streaming platforms that we had contacted and spoken to before because I could give you an entire cautionary tale about what happens in the uh, movie industry, especially now with the big streaming platforms that I won't go into. But we're going to go back to them again and to uh, uh, see a, their interest in putting this up on their platform. So hopefully by the middle of December, we're going to have everything ready so that people can uh, watch this however they want to and whenever they want to. Otherwise, if all that fails, you know, and there's always a possibility of that, then at some point I'm just going to put it on YouTube and tell everybody in the world, watch my movie because I would rather you get something out of it in watching it than end up being
0: beholden to. Uh, some company or some other people i'm like that well (laughs) please let us know uh, if you do get that mid december release on whatever platform and we'll definitely be plugging the shit out of it what's happening with nights at the sound table you were taking a bit of a summer break you're coming back fairly shortly yes we'll be back in the middle of
4: september i'm re-energized and i'm very excited uh, by it and
0: that's that's basically it for nights so people out there who want to hear the show that'll be available on the usual podcast platforms iTunes or what do we call now Apple Music or Or the like. Yeah, whatever it came, whatever it turned out to be. (laughs) So it is, and for for the listeners out there, it is knights as in N I G H T S, not with a K. Yes, yeah, knights at the sound
4: table. If you go to knightsatthesoundtable.com, I think you can download like the last maybe fifty episodes, and there's also a page on that site where you can listen to us uh, stream live, and you can like us on of the various social media platforms, and I always announce the shows on them. That's basically it. You can also go to NATST, that's Nights at the Sound Table, N-A-T-S-T. Rocks, and it'll take you to the
0: website. Well, Kevin, thank you so much for your time today. We've had uh, what I think was a really enjoyable conversation and more power to you for taking your passion and presenting it out there in both an audio medium with the podcast and Making a really really enjoyable film, and I think if if you got nothing else out of it, it sounds like you know just getting the chance to meet and speak with people about their love of music was probably you know the biggest takeaway for you.
4: Oh, absolutely, and I want to thank uh, both you, Morris, and Bernie for uh, putting up with my rambling. For <laughs>
0: thank goodness for your rambling, that's what makes the show interesting.
2: Absolutely, you're very welcome, uh, Kevin. We're a show full of ramblers, so. Uh... <laughs> we appreciate you coming on and rambling with us
0: awesome thank you so much you guys all right we'll be back in a moment you're listening to episode 67 of c here we'll talk about what's happening in next month's show We hope you enjoyed that chat as much as we enjoyed having it. Kevin was a terrific guest and heads up, we'll be inviting Kevin back just as a film lover, just as a music lover to talk about a film in the future because we're always up for fellow presenters.
2: Yeah, we're going to hold you to that, Kevin. You're uh, you're coming back whether you like it or not.
0: Mm. We know where you live. (laughs) Long Beach, California. That's it.
2: We know your Skype
0: name. (laughs) Well, that's nearly as good. So before we talk about what next month's film is, just a bit of a heads up. Tim is not going to be on the show for the next couple of months. He needs a little bit of time out. Got a lot of things on his plate. So we're looking forward to you coming back, Tim. We love you. But bernie and i will carry on the good work and we'll do a show maybe just the two of us and we'll do another show that we will invite someone on so that's what's happening for the next couple of months so if you're a tim fan please keep subscribing to us we'll try to be as interesting as he is it's a hard task i know but tim wouldn't want you to tune out from us i don't think anyway so what we're going to do for next month is a film that I think I might have mentioned at the end of the last episode. But I wasn't sure whether the long playing interview was going to go ahead. So I made this other film as a backup. But we are definitely going to talk about a film from 2018 called Heavy Trip. It's a, a comedy about a group of young men who've been playing in their basement for like 12 years and have never sought a gig and then all of a sudden they get the opportunity to play one so we haven't seen this film yet i saw the trailer for it found out that it was available i think on canopy so if uh, you have a library card i've been saying this to whoever will listen for the last few months you need to get canopy streaming it's fantastic you pay nothing for it you just register with your library card and search out the film there and play along with us looking immensely forward to uh, watching this and talking about it on next month's episode i don't know do we know any heavy metal buffs that might want to talk about this with us Uh, tim oh wait oh yeah oh no no good (laughs) (laughs) i could ask max but i think he's already averse to the idea because i think Mm. he thinks it's going to be making fun we'll see anyway might just be the two of us looking forward to talking about that film if you want to join the facebook group and talk about films that you've been watching in a music vein then you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash C here that's s-w-h-e-a-r if you want to find multiple ways to listen to us we're on spotify we're on stitcher or we're just on the website seehere.podbean.com if you want to send us an email the old-fashioned way but a way that i really love you can write to us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com
2: don't forget we are on instagram as well see here podcast. so uh look us up and follow us
0: indeed looking forward to uh seeing what photos you put up this month
2: <laughs> hopefully a few more than last month okay i think part of the fun of uh being following us on instagram is waiting to see whether i actually post anything or not so
0: you are duty bound to post at least one photo i'd prefer oh, i do at least one okay good well so uh, let me guess lee a photo uh i don't know of a record
2: uh, well, well you'll have to wait and see this month or well you won't because you're not on instagram but perhaps i'll tell you
0: <laughs> Yep. maybe I might put up a photo of a cassette or something like that there we go the struggle is real kids today they don't understand about what we used to do to repair a cassette with a pencil with a pencil mm. yeah Jeez. Yeah. all right well, tough times indeed so until next month be nice to each other. Listen to lots of records. Listen to lots of CDs. Dare I even suggest it? Find an old reel-to-reel machine. Look up for one That's on eBay.
2: That's what I was going to say. Mm. Oh. Break out the old Revox and listen to the, uh, the reel-to-reel, yeah.
0: But most importantly, as what's come out of that conversation, is just listen to music. It's not about the system of delivery. It's about the music. That's what we think anyway. Amen. So, so until next month, look after each other, and we'll speak to you um, in September we'll will lay a real heavy trip on you. All the best. Cheers. Take
3: care, bye. bye I got Willie Wailin' and Woody Guthrie, Jimmy Bumble, I love it and Bobby Jen Jerry Jeff, Bob Dell and Donnie Fritz and Death in the Doors, Patsy Klein, Jump and More I got.